Hello, I'm Rupert Soskin. And I'm Michael Bott. And this is the Standing With Stones Antiquarian Podcast. This podcast is only made possible by monthly donations from our listeners who have supported us through Patreon.com. You can become one of our patrons for as little as a dollar a month by visiting Patreon.com slash Standing With Stones. So welcome to the Standing With Stones monthly podcast number 18 for September 2019. And this month we're looking into the more gruesome side of our ancestors. <laughs> yeah, brutal killings and um, even some surprises when it comes to Neolithic fine dining. <laughs> it's oh, true. my lord, you won't it's believe. <laughs> you won't believe. <laughs> It's true that some of this came as a big surprise to us, even though many of these discoveries were made some years ago. Do you know, it really is surprising just how many things never get into the public domain. It's so true. Well, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it, haven't they? Indeed, indeed. Yeah. I think it falls upon us. We hope you enjoy the podcast when it gets down to it. But before... <laughs> Before I ask you the inevitable question about what's going to be pushing back our boundaries this month, I just wanted to give a big shout-out. Now, we just wanted everybody to know that we're so grateful to the very special people who have decided to support us through Patreon, whatever level of subscription you're at. Now, you may not think that your individual contribution makes that much different, but it does. You... You folk, effectively putting your hand in your pocket, each and every one of you, knocks our socks off every time because we take <laughs> it as a huge... Well, we do. We take it as a huge vote of confidence. And we that do. is massively inspiring to us, inspires us you know, to strive to do more and more and, and to do it better. Definitely a win-win situation. <laughs> so, so look, your confidence in us has really helped us to raise our sights for the future. And we're looking forward to becoming the, and I mean the, go-to place on the internet for prehistoric content and, uh, and, and fact-based investigation of uh, ancient lives. In fact... We're getting ready to change up a gear in the next few months, so watch out for a few tweaks and changes. Indeed yes. we are. <laughs> in the meantime, rest assured, your support does make a difference. Huge anyway, difference. we've got a benchmark goal of having a 1,000 Patreon supporters within a year or so, and any help achieving that is gratefully received. So, I've said that. It needed to be said. It did need before. to be said. Well done there, man. I ask you... What is pushing back the boundaries this month, Rupert? <laughs> well, this is really quite different, actually. No. Um, a team from the Maritime Archaeological Trust has discovered what they believe to be is the world's oldest known boat building site oh, off yes. the coast of the Isle of Wight. Oh, yes. Uh, oh, wow. Yes. Sorry. Um, read about this. Um, it, it is a wow, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Uh, uh, this site is about 8,000 years old and was actually discovered back in 2005. But once again, it's modern technology that has provided a much clearer analysis of the structure. Uh, it's under 11 metres of water. 11 metres? 
That's a lot of water. It is a lot of water. Uh, And obviously that didn't make it any easier to analyse, but it's throwing up a lot of surprises, not least of all woodworking techniques that weren't thought to have developed for another 2,000 years. Absolutely. Once again, we've got to reassess the development of human culture and society, isn't it? Yeah, um, amazing, isn't it? You know, the, the, the site comprises carefully worked timbers, making trackways and platforms. Uh, and you have to bear in mind that this is before Britain fully separated from the European mainland. So it's yeah. hard to say exactly what the topography was like, other than above sea level when the Solent was a river valley. So the problem now is that due to its position in the Solent, the site is being eroded away by about half a metre a year. So archaeologists are working against the clock to excavate and preserve all the timbers. And uh, (laughs) I'll give you a crazy statistic that puts some perspective on this. Okay. yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this site on it, own doubles the amount of prehistoric worked wood ever found in the UK. Oh, that's ridiculous. That is so impressive. (laughs) (laughs) No. I know, but you know, one last thing that tickled me. What's that? Do you know how it was discovered? (laughs) I can tell by the tone of your voice. It's going to be good. It'll be good. Go on. I loved it. The the whole settlement off the shore of, it's Boldener Cliff um, on the Unwind. It was found because a lobster was seen clearing out worked pieces of flint from its burrow on the seabed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is just brilliant. I love that. I tell, I tell you what it is about this, though, for, for, for me, and I, I don't know if everybody appreciates this off, off the bat, is that we're still, the, the Neolithic hasn't kicked off yet in Britain at this time. Yeah. Uh, we're still essentially back in the Mesolithic, which means these guys, these folk are still hunter-gatherers. Farming hasn't arrived. And mm. we really have not appreciated or it's not been thought previously that groups of people were cooperating at this kind of level that would that, that mm. they could come together and um, uh, uh, and create something like this you know if you're building if you're building boats on well I wouldn't say an industrial scale but you know you've come together for the purpose of doing it making somewhere specifically mm. for it that's a different story entirely isn't it in terms of cooperation and what we Very thought was going so. on at the yeah. time yeah it's interesting how we compartmentalize things like that, yeah. isn't it? You know, because we're we're very clued up. You know, we were talking uh, in the last podcast, or was it the one before? I lose track. Uh, about settlements, you know, we know yeah. about some of the truly ancient, sophisticated settlements that go back, you know, even older than this. And yet, we still, when it comes to Britain, yeah. talk solely of hunter gatherers before the advent of farming. So, yeah. yeah, it is different perspectives all round, really. Yeah, so pushing back the boundaries on um, quite a few fronts, I'd say. It, indeed, indeed. There you go, moving on. Yes, let's move on. So, well, on to the news then. What have you got? So, interestingly, on the back of your pushing back the boundaries, um, you say it's thought to be the oldest known 
old, oldest known boat boat. <laughs> <laughs> Old, oldest mm. known boat building site at around 8,000 years old. That's what they said. Well, well, it's interesting that the team of Czech archaeologists in question here are saying that their 7,000-year-old structure is the oldest wooden construction in Europe. Mm. I'm guessing they mean mainland Europe as the Isle of Wight boatyard is clearly older. Anyway, this is a 7,000-year-old well found near Ostrov during the construction of the D35 road. Uh-huh. There are a number of remarkable factors here, not least of all that the team from Pardubice University are using sugar to preserve the wood. Sugar? Yes, Go on, sugar. You'll, have to expl- you'll have to explain that. Well, apparently the chemical composition of sucrose is very similar to that of cellulose in wood. So by immersing the wood in a sucrose solution for months, it gradually seeps into the cells of the wood and stops deterioration. Yeah, well, that's clever. Obvious, really, now you think about it. (laughs) But apparently the technique is used quite a lot. Oh, really? It shows what I know. Well, it shows what I know as well, to be honest. But... uh, But above that, there's another lovely detail. Using dendrochronology, they've been able to date the timbers precisely, and the trees, all oak, incidentally, used to make the planks for the walls were felled between 5,256 and 5,255 BC. Wow. That's accurate, isn't it? That's amazing. And interestingly, the corner posts were made from trunks felled a few years before cut down in either the autumn or winter of 5,259 or the spring of 5,258 BC. Wow, they can be that specific. Uh, Well, I mean, that's a result, really, isn't it? Yeah. That's just incredible. On top of that, there were so many animal and plant remains that they're going to be able to reconstruct the Neolithic environment in in so much detail in, in terms of what the you know water levels were, you know what the flora and fauna were doing. It's all really rather wonderful, in my opinion. Amazing. Actually, it's worth mentioning that during this massive road building project, they found another seven prehistoric wells, but this is the best preserved. Basically, the high water table has kept it permanently submerged or moist. To give it some scale, it is 80 centimetres square under 140 centimetres deep, so very roughly 2 foot 6 inches square by 5 foot deep. So basically, that, that's, that, that's kind of the right sort of size for dunking a bucket, I suppose. Yeah, without too much uh, problem. It's not a question of winding a bucket down on a... Yeah, OK, interesting. Is it? Yeah. yeah. But when all the preservation work is complete, it'll, it'll go on display in the Padubichi Museum. OK, well, I, I'm going to take us somewhere a little closer, uh, <laughs> to the Isle of Man. Oh, we're going home! <laughs> hey! Well, in, in case you didn't know, the Isle of Man is where I was born 64 years ago. Yes. 64 years ago, yes. You, uh, I think this is a little further north from where you were. I think, so what, not, what, what, not that anything is far away. Yeah, what's <laughs> happening? Uh, well, this is at Burke Farm near Kirkmichael. Kirkmichael. Kirkmichael yes. is on the TT course. It is on the TT course, is yes. true? Yeah, they go through uh, Kirkmichael at quite a speed. <laughs> and have a lovely view that they probably never notice. Yeah. Uh, but uh, no, archaeologists have found a fantastic fantastically intact Bronze Age burial 
uh, with a rather beautiful jet necklace, which they think came from Yorkshire. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, the burial is part of a large amount that has been under excavation for four years now as part of the round mounds of the Isle of Man project. Can I just uh, sort of slightly interject there? Four years, please. it so- sounds like a lot, but now having been on two archaeological digs uh, <laughs> down the country... It probably doesn't represent an awful lot of work it, it, because seasons for digging are severely constricted du- to during the yeah. summer months and depend on how many volunteers you can get. So that four years may only represent, for example, eight weeks of work. Yeah. Just saying, you know, yeah. just to put it into into perspective, yeah. it may be. It, may it's be interesting, more, but, isn't it? You know. uh, I think, um, in fact, you know, to be honest, and until you went on uh, on your recent digs, I I hadn't appreciated that aspect either, because mm. obviously, mm. you know, it's when you think about it, it is obvious that it, nothing is ever going to be quick because everything has to be drawn away so meticulously and carefully. So nothing happens quickly. But then if you are constrained by a season to only a matter of weeks in any given year, then, yeah. That's right. That's the field archaeology, by the way. That is Mm. just the field archaeology. Obviously, there's a lot of work goes on uh, besides the majority of the Mm. work. But, uh, yeah. Um, But I just thought I'd... uh, Sorry about that digression. Yeah, (laughs) It's a good point to raise. But, But the thing is, this particular burial... Is yeah. about as intact as you'll find anywhere. They've been able to establish that the mound itself was in use for hundreds of years, and they've excavated cremated remains, ceramic pots, stone tools, and obviously in this burial, a rather splendid engraved necklace. An engraved necklace? Oh, right. Mm. Interesting. Well, um, what sort of engraving are we talking about? Well, it's a rather lovely geometric design, actually, made up of pecked dots that form diamonds and bands. It really is lovely. Oh, crikey. And uh, they uh, they actually think the jet came from Whitby. Oh. Which does beg the question, you know, was the stone imported and engraved on the yeah. Isle of Man, or was yeah, it manufactured yeah. in Yorkshire and brought to the island afterwards? Oh, yeah, interesting stuff. Were they importing gemstones or ready-made jewellery? Wow. Yeah, Yeah. it's lovely, isn't it? So the the site is about 4,000 years old. Okay. And excavation is being carried out by universities of Newcastle and Leicester, not surprisingly supported by Manx National Heritage. Manx National Heritage, bless them. Yeah. Um, Very on the ball with archaeology on the Isle of Man. Yeah, they really, really are... um, I'm guessing this necklace will eventually find its way to the Manx Museum in Douglas. Hope so. Um, it really is a beautiful thing and seriously ought to go on public display. Excellent. Thank you for that. I think you'll like this one as go on, well. Ben. Do you remember back in the July podcast, um, that was number 16, I think, we uh-huh. talked about the amazing discovery of the burnt-out settlement at Must Farm near Peterborough? Ah, yes, fantastic site, where they discovered a crazy amount of artefacts, yeah, including cloth still on the loom. Yeah, well, I, th- I think that's quite well known because there's been quite a lot on the telly about that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's the one. Well, um, believe it or not... Um, this site just keeps on giving. 
Well, really, as if it wasn't enough already. Yeah, I know. Well, you remember in the whimsy section, you put on your grouchy hat and berated poor Mark Knight, who said it might have been destroyed as a ritual burning. You said if it was ritual, they wouldn't have left human feces in it, yes? (laughs) Yes, I did say that. You did say that. You did (laughs) say that. I remember it well. Well... I'll tell you, it's the faeces that has brought this information to the light. <laughs> of course it is. Well, yes. What pearls of wisdom have been extracted from the crap? <laughs> I, I'm not enjoying the visuals of that. <laughs> oh, let's not go there. Anyway, archaeologists from Cambridge University have analysed a whole load of coprolites that were preserved by being waterlogged. I didn't know that happened to them. You'd have thought, anyway. (laughs) The faeces revealed revealed that the Fenland dwellers were badly infected with parasitic worms. Oh, that's lovely. What? (laughs) I don't think you quite mean that. Yeah, I can only apologise. Yeah. (laughs) You've got a strange mind. It's the it's the way that we can extract information from absolutely oh, anything. Oh, oh, that's what you're thinking about. That's lovely. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. You don't you haven't got a thing about parasitic worms. No, and, no. Joking aside, it, it's actually more interesting than it sounds. Analysis has shown that dogs and people were carrying the same parasites, which tells you they were eating the same food. Uh It's also revealed the earliest evidence for fish tapeworm and giant kidney worm (laughs) in Britain. (laughs) Sorry, I don't know why this is. I can't. (laughs) Both of which are spread by eating raw aquatic animals. Oh, Oh, okay. But but you see here, we've got a really intriguing ecological situation. The practice of discarding their faecal waste into the water meant that they didn't get direct contamination into their food, something which has been found elsewhere. But because of the dense reed beds, water was very slow-moving or even stagnant, so the waste built up, creating a, a real breeding ground for parasites which then got into the fish and mollusks, etc., in the food chain. It really is amazing how pieces of jigsaw puzzle can click into place as a result of the most unlikely details. And why is it I can't get through talking about scatological material without cracking up? (laughs) Well, schoolboy humour. Yeah, schoolboy humour. I I have, uh, with my naturalist hat on, I have a lot of crap in my life on a regular basis, so I... uh, um, Anything you want to talk about? Um, well, parasitic worms or is that are quite interesting. Podcast? <laughs> do you know, I would love to do a special on crap. Ah, uh, who'd have thought, eh? The things we can learn from poo. <laughs> We wanted to name this section Murder Among the Megaliths. Yeah, we did. We did. Um, Unfortunately, there aren't that many records of actual murder (laughs) among megaliths. No, no. See, see, the perils of seeking alliteration. That's (laughs) right. It would have sounded good. It would have looked good. Yes. Um, There are two instances, perhaps, though, just... To kick off, there are two instances of actual murder among the megaliths. Yeah, that's about all, though, isn't it? 
I know, and they both happened to be at Stonehenge. <laughs> yeah. And not necessarily in, you know, the kind of period that uh, we, you know, prefer to push things back to. One was mm. early Roman, apparently. Yes. Um, a guy who was buried in a... who had been killed with a, a sword um, and was buried uh, just outside the circle in a, in a pit. Mm. And an, another one called, uh, sometimes called the Stonehenge Archer who wasn't necessarily an archer, but was called as such because he was d- found with arrowheads in the uh, ditch where he was buried. He was d- buried in, in the Stonehenge ditch, yeah. and he had arrowheads with him, but then people realised, hang about, they were the arrowheads that killed him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, that's about as much as one can say. Do we have a date for the Stonehenge archer? Uh, we do. Uh, he's been dated to around 2300 BC, which, uh, so Bronze Age, oh. I mean, it, it makes yeah, yeah. him roughly contemporary with uh, the Amesbury Archer and the Boscombe Bowman. Oh, yes. But, it's all around the same yeah, time. But after, after Stonehenge, after the Sarsons have gone up. Yes, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. No, yeah. there have been no end of speculations about how he met his end and why, but they will, of course, always remain speculations because mm. uh, there's not much further you can, uh, much more you can do about that. The odd thing is the inspiration for us choosing this topic um, really occurred much further back in time. I have been reading an excellent book that I can recommend to all called The Tale of the Axe, How the Neolithic Revolution Transformed Britain. Although the title would lead you to believe that it focuses on uh, axes and Britain, the author, uh, David Miles, uh, extends the story right back to the beginning of uh, farming culture in the Middle East and follows it right through. Uh, into developments in Central Europe, which is where this interest comes in because it is within Central Europe, in the early Neolithic, that we get profound evidences of basically human beings not being very nice to other human beings. Yes, that's an understatement, Mm. is it not? Yeah, I mean, this whole thing of deliberate aggressive violence it sounds like a ridiculous thing to say but it it seems like an awful lot of it was not simply about you know protecting yourself for marauders uh, some of this was quite deliberately barbaric wasn't it yeah yeah and it's interesting to contextualize our thoughts a little bit you know because uh, i'm led to believe that um after the war after the second world war i've seen it i've heard it said that Archaeologists tended to go towards believing our ancestors were... There was a tendency to romanticise the past, um, that uh, the people in the past uh, were somehow gentler. There was the, the ideal of the, the noble savage came in, into being, as if everybody lived in this Arcadian, uh, tranquil... Yeah, do you think it was that late? I mean, I, I suppose there might be some correlation there, but if you think about it, I mean, even even Stukely is That's still that is significantly true. to yeah. blame for the romanticising of uh, yeah, yeah. you know Druid culture and yes. everything. 
I'm only <coughs> re- reporting what I have read, but you know, that's yeah, a, interesting. That is a very good point. Um, and maybe the idea of the noble savage dates too far, far earlier. But I think uh, you know it's it's an idea that I've bought into, and I don't know why we do that. It's it's kind of an assumption, I suppose. It, it's a measure of how fed up we are with things how they are now. <laughs> we we, we yes. tend to idealise mm. another place and another time. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. uh, evidence that's been coming to light recently uh, suggests rather otherwise in a certain particular areas of time anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, it's certainly it's another one of those things where, you know, modern tech, you know, the fact that you can actually analyse bones and know, uh, you know, did somebody fall over and break their leg or yeah. no? Were they smacked with an axe? They were smacked with an axe. Um and it's surprising, actually, something that I didn't know, to be honest, until uh, reading up f- for this, is the amount of times where there were deliberate broken legs, for example. I think you're referring to there is one standout site where that has occurred. I don't think there's much evidence of that outside of this particular site, this one site. It's the Schinnerkillenstaten site. Uh, it is the Schinnerkillenstaten site, yeah. Um, yeah, we'll get on, get on to that. But that, that site sits amongst um, two or three other examples, um, particularly that date to the early Neolithic. Mm-hmm. And all trails... When you start um, investigating murder in the Neolithic or people being beastly <laughs> to each other in the Neolithic, take you to the LBK culture. LBK yes. stands for linear band ceramic. Uh, the LBK folk were pretty much the original farmers that came in from, uh, that came in from the Middle East. The uh, LBK marks the transition in Central Europe from Mesolithic to the Neolithic. And the goings-on that we're talking about are going on at the end of the LBK period, suggesting that that culture was breaking down or that there were pressures within it that were causing these nasty things to happen. That's where the evidence takes us. And that's it's this LBK culture at the end of we're talking around about five thousand BC here, yeah. You know? So well before Neolithic kicks off in in Britain, mm. um, but farming and this is before the megalithic times. So no megalithic yeah, building going on before, yeah. at all. Yeah. That these were yeah. uh, farmers um, who had displaced the original hunter gatherers. In mm. Central Europe, so so that's where most of the evidence takes us to these particular sites where evidence of um, uh, uh, evidence of massacre have taken case. But there's an- another aspect, interestingly, and this is where the fine dining aspect that I mentioned <laughs> right at the top of the program comes uh, yes. in. Uh, <laughs> that the chasing this down has led us to evidence of. Cannibalism. Yes. Rupert, say a bit more about that. Wow, it's really interesting because, you know, how far back do you want to go? Uh, Mm. uh, The thing that I found particularly interesting is that you can go back a long way into the Paleolithic 
you know, there's the Magdalenian uh, culture who were across uh, Europe. Uh, there's a lot, of, load of caves. It's uh, I, to be honest, I can't remember why it was called the Magdalenian no. culture, um, but uh, but they date between seventeen to twelve thousand years ago. Yeah, and bones found connected with that culture often show signs of cannibalism. You know, they've been yeah. split to extract the marrow and the human bones have been engraved. Um, what seems to be happening as you move closer to present is that cannibalism was becoming less and less common. It's almost as if maybe people started making a correlation that, uh, you know, that maybe Kruzov Yakult disease <laughs> uh, <you laughs> dear, know, oh it, it is always going to end badly when you're eating your own species. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know. We can't say anything about that other than the fact that cannibalism did become less and less common yeah. uh, as you came closer. So the Neolithic, I think, uh, how many sites are there during the Neolithic that show signs of cannibalism? Probably not many. Well, I'm thinking of uh, Herxheim. Oh, Herxheim was massive, wasn't it? Which brings us mm. into the LBK region again. Mm. Um, I don't know why that should be, but Herxheim uh, displays a completely different aspect, you know, uh, of um, <laughs> human beings' attitude to each other, I think, <laughs> to well, put, it, put it, it lightly. It, am I right that Herxheim is actually, is it the largest um Mass burial that uh, that we found of five hundred corpses. I know they dug up at uh, at Herxheim. Well, I think they estimated that the I think they estimated that there were five hundred at least five hundred individuals in that. They have sort of algorithms that without where they can estimate the number of total number of uh, right. of the remains through having dug up only a certain amount. Right. And I think the the number is actually expanding and is actually far greater than that. Oh, you're uh, kidding. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. In this uh, necropolis. Yes. Yeah. What seems to be have been a necropolis for the LBK people of uh, of this area. That's so interesting because um, the, the meat was distinctly cut from bones at Herxheim. Absolutely, the, uh, the 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 humans, um, you know, whether it was religious purposes or a practice, you know, that took place during warfare. Mm. Um, but the humans at the site of Herxheim were definitely butchered and uh, eaten. Yes. Uh, cut marks. But you know, the, yeah. But the, the odd thing about Herxheim is that there were no signs of battle wounds. No. So there, there was no, apart from the fact that, yeah, they were definitely killed and butchered. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, there, nobody's skull was staved in. There were mm. no arrowheads stuck in ribs or anything like that. That everyone appeared to be healthy. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, e even their teeth were in good condition. Apparently, there was no signs of malnutrition. So it, it's even led uh, some people to theorise, and I kind of wince a little bit at these ideas, but uh, but they've even theorised that these were people who volunteered to be sacrificed. Well, I don't know about yeah, that. I think, <clears throat> well, uh, they're basing that on the fact that there is no aggression, you know, that these people seemed to... Um, 
you know, be <laughs> dispatched without uh, resistance. I don't think that makes you necessarily a volunteer. Uh, no, no, I, I don't. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's fascinating, and I think that because Herxheim is just one instance, it, it, you can't make a comparison with other sites and come mm. to really any any conclusions. Mm. All you've got is the plain evidence um, that uh, extraordinary stuff was uh, was going on. What yeah. their thinking was, what the purpose was. That's another matter. Mm. But it's interesting that this gruesomeness is uh, happening in th this same timeline. We're coming we're, we're with this LBK people. I don't think LBK people were particularly bad people, but there was certainly mm. must have been some kind of pressure on them, some kind of natural pressure, some kind of intertribal pressure, the pressure mm. of, I don't know whether it was climate change, something going on yeah. that, that uh, made them a little bit desperate because human beings do very strange things when yeah. they don't understand what's do going know, on and they get I, desperate. I think one of the one of the aspects that it may be a thing, mm -hmm. uh, but th there's one of the statistics that I find particularly interesting is that very few of these uh, of the bodies were women. Ah, uh, it's a it's a real minority of these yeah. uh, of the dead are women, which implies that maybe the women were captured and taken away as. Uh, prisoners whether that be slaves or potential wives but for me that this you know is there an implication here that people uh, you know because people had been living in such small and insular communities for such yeah. a long time that actually from a pure health point of view people were instinctively going and grabbing women from elsewhere that's right um this is the point about there being <clears throat> now several sites um which display very similar statistics in terms of the ratios of age and gender of mm. the people that have been killed or conversely who have been uh, excluded from these uh, mass burials. Now, it should be said, you may not have heard of the linear band ceramic culture before, but apparently it is the most studied culture um, prehistoric culture in in Europe. And there are many, many examples of normal burials near or in um, LBK settlements, uh, which display similarities of uh, reverence for the dead, you know, them being um, buried in certain positions, maybe with a few uh, artefacts, uh, grave goods. Nothing elaborate, but um, obviously buried with care. Mm. Here we're talking about basically 20 to 30 people that have been slain and slung in a pit. Mm. Very different thing. Uh, and the, the these three sites, the correlations between the demographics of the people in those graves do point, as you say, to this thing of um, the young women having been taken away. Mm. Not only that, but uh, there, there is a gap in the, uh, the, the the male demographic towards the um, late teenager, early 20s, yes. which also suggests that either they were fit enough to run away 
seriously, or yeah. um, uh, they were also being taken, you know, as good bloodstock for. Mm-hmm. So you know that is something that will also not be known. Anyway, trauma seems to have been from blunt instruments. From uh, they match with uh, stone adzes that were yeah. being used at the time, and from time to time also arrows. Yeah. Do you know, I'll tell you something that I found uh, intriguing and uh, <laughs> gave me pause to uh, to wonder. There's There was one site, and I'm ashamed to say, I don't remember which one it was off the top of my head. There were, uh, I can't remember how many skeletons there, but amongst the dead, there were also some severed left arms. Did you read about this one? Um, yes, I did. Uh, and the the thing that really came in my head as a question was the <laughs> severing an arm when you, we haven't got into metal culture here, you know, so mm. it's not like you've sharpened a, a bronze <laughs> sword. What the hell have you used to cut somebody's arm off? Yeah. That's, that's brutality on a, <laughs> a very enthusiastic level. It is indeed. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't, uh, hadn't really thought of that. I can't remember which site it is off the top of my head, unfortunately. No. Um, but the, other, but the uh, anomalous site, um, which displays all the characteristics of the other sites mentioned, that's uh, Talheim, which is in Germany, and Aspen Schletz, which is in Austria, is uh, Schönerkillenstatten, which is in Germany. And this is the place where you've got similar burials, statistically similar burials in terms of mix of people and uh, all the rest of it and the way they've been treated, except mm. for one thing, and that is the attention, shall we say, to the shin bone. Mm. Um, whether this represents torture or whether it represents some kind of uh, warning to others or whether it represents... Uh, some kind of spiritual thing that prevents the dead person running after whoever their killer is, but the tibia has been smashed. It, it is interesting, isn't it? You see, I, it makes me, or it, I might be wide of the mark, but it reminds me of one of the practices in the slave trade was that when slaves repeatedly tried to escape, uh, they'd have half a foot cut off sometimes. Oh, blimey. So actually smashing people's shin bones, yeah. you know, that, that, that is something that, apart from hurting like hell, uh, you know, it, it's nothing more terminal than whether that is then that they can't run anywhere while you're trying to be even more unspeakable is another issue altogether. Yeah, assuming the damage is done um, prior to death. Indeed, yes, yeah. yes, 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 uh, yes. That is a good point. It is possible that uh, it was done after death. So mm. the spirit, as I say, as the spirit could not pursue the assailant. If they mm. were feeling a bit guilty about what they had done, I don't know. <laughs> well, it's, it, it is astonishing, isn't it, really? I, 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 where do you go with numbers? See, there's Aspam in Austria. Now, that was one of the larger ones, wasn't it? Yes. There's 60, 67 bodies yeah. that, uh, that they found mm. there. I don't know. I, you know the, the, I think the trouble with any of these situations where you, you have the, the indisputable facts, you know, so X amount of people dead from you know, whatever level of, uh, of brutality. But 
you know, but how do you... Oh, God, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, right. Just my head immediately <clears> went, <throat> but how do you put the flesh on the bones of... Uh, oh, yes. Uh, and then, you know, that wasn't <laughs> deliberate at all. It's just an appalling pun to make at this moment. <laughs> yes. Uh, bad taste. But it's a very bad taste. But, but you know, how... How do you flesh out? No, not that one either. How? How? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, what are you to make of uh, of any of these? You know, because anything that we try to make sense of, you know, we are essentially just making it up. Um, well, except that we do have ethnographic studies that tell us that these things go on, um, that tribes do raid one another, mm. um, or, you know, all over the world. It's odd and it's, sound, it's distasteful to us who um, ostensibly live in, quote marks, a civilised <laughs> world. Yeah. But to many tribes, apparently, it seems that, you know, raiding is and was a practice. Yeah. It's something you do. Mm. North American Indians did it. It was a way of becoming noble, of, of how would the braves otherwise become braves? Well, yes, that's true. I, I, it, I, you know, we can't escape the fact that basic tribal nature mm. is, is often rooted in territorialism. Mm. You try to expand your territory. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a human instinct. Or um, you steal. Uh, yes, yes, which is in many ways, uh, you know, uh, another branch of the same thing, but yeah. it, the thing is, I, I I balk at you know people are very quick to put the ritual badge on all sorts of things, you know. So <laughs> so for example, you know the the you know the instances of uh, of breaking shin bones mm. and people suggesting that this is a ritualized thing. Well, you think, yeah. well, yeah, but all you need is one chieftain of a tribe who thinks that that's a right laugh to really hurt people um, so that they can't run away. And so it becomes a tribal thing that is just like cats playing with a mouse. That it, you know, it's, it's no more yeah. ritualised than ain't somebody that being fact. a sadist. Ain't that the fact? Yeah, it just takes one bastard, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and suddenly it's okay for everybody. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's a really good point and something that... Uh, God, we should bear in mind so often when looking at so many aspects of the, of uh, the past, yes. you know, that um, strange evidences for this, that and the other going on may just mm. not represent a global or a general generality, but one instance in time. Yeah. 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 Very, very good. I mean, to, to put a, a completely skewed slant on it, but as a, as a deliberate comparison you know mm. supposing you take and, and and we could name any number there's no point naming them but in recent years where uh, you know mass murderers yeah. that you know when they've eventually been found you know you find that they've been killing people the wests are a good example you know they've been murdering people for the fun of it and burying them in and around the garden maybe in a cellar and so you know what would you make of if you excavated this uh, however many years down the uh, down the yeah. line, uh, who was the chap who used to cut people's heads off and he'd keep their heads in the fridge? I can't remember. Um, no, I can't remember either. But but w what I'm getting at is that you know here you have uh, one sick nutter, yeah, 
who has killed people and buried their remains under the ground, mm. uh, uh, you know, and, and maybe separated heads. Well, if, if we were using the same uh, frame of reference as, you know, as many of our archaeologists choose, then, you know, we would look at any of these sick individuals and, mm. uh, and we would see ritualised, uh, you know, murder and uh, and burial. Absolutely. It's something to be beware of. But I think it's why we come to talking about the particular places that we have is that they, they, they're not one-off instances. That's the whole yeah. point about Talheim, Schönert, Kilianstadt and Aspen Schatz is yeah. that they correlate with each other. They are... they pretty well contemporary with each other. So whatever the driver was for this obnoxious behaviour, um, mm. you know, it, 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 it's kind of tangible in these remains, in, in these uh, discoveries. Yes, um, yes. So, so that's why there's something to say about these particular instances, you know, which is something you can't say. Something, uh, for, for example, Pemelter yeah, in yes. Germany, yes, which is much more recent, what we're talking, 2300 BC, where yeah. we've got evidence of some kind of massacre or, you know, mass killing taking place. And indeed, the place we talked about in, what was it, podcast number 16, 15 something, Koscheitze. Yeah, the annihilation of that uh, family. That's uh, three thousand yes. BC. But because yeah. they're, they're one-offs, there's there's no uh, there isn't another example, another contemporary example to go with them. You, you can't go beyond yeah. just speculating yeah. about what might have happened in that one instance. Yeah, this this um, this LBK stuff is another matter entirely. Well, it, it just as you said, you know, I mean, it just emphasises how how badly humans can behave when yeah. cultural differences raise their heads. Mm, you know, that mm. uh, uh, we, as an animal, we're frightened of the unknown. We mistrust uh, people who don't speak our language or uh, will look a little bit different. And, uh, you know, I mean, even today, you know, we haven't changed much in thousands of years, have we? You no, know, the, no, no, no. Given, given, hot, you know, ghastly pressures, we're, we're mm. quite capable of uh, doing nasty things. I tell you what, though, you know, just uh, uh, I'm going back to Herxheim just from a, a just a thought process point of view that uh, that 500 or more corpses who've been cannibalised. You think what? What a grisly scene that must have been. Yeah, I don't know what over what period of time no. uh, this this occurred, but uh, it, it is hard to visualise to give it any kind of context. There's you've got nothing to relate to, really. No, um, no. That you, you could uh, dream up. It, it's so alien. I think that uh, you know. I mean, for many people. Uh, that uh, when you uh, when you walk through a, a, a butcher's, or certainly if you go through a butchery department in any of the larger supermarkets or what have you, uh, or if you've ever been into an abattoir, that there is something hugely unnerving about uh, meat when it's not been you know <laughs> brought down to the sort of thing that you're used to eating when yeah. it's still pieces of body, yeah. and if you've ever seen bush meat. So where uh, particularly, you know, it's very common in, uh, in places like uh, Congo, where they, they eat monkeys and gorillas. And, uh, and so you see 
essentially it's a human hand it might as well be mm. and it's hugely disturbing when you see something that is so profoundly recognizable mm. and so you know the notion of people chewing on a a hand <laughs> oh know. my god yeah. Who knew we were going to go here? I'm sorry, Dear it's your fault. I'm yes. blaming you. You sound like you're speaking from personal experience. <laughs> I don't even chew my own fingernails. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we, we hope um, that's given you um, food for thought, even if it is of a rather grisly nature. Yeah, food for thought, albeit not human. Oh, yes. please. How is it the, the puns keep rolling? I'm sorry. Off the, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to avoid, strangely enough, in this area, isn't it? <laughs> I tell you what, look, while we're just, just to finish off, I, it did inspire one thought in me coming forward into the Iron Age. As you know, I was on a dig on Orkney uh, some weeks ago now on the Cairns Brock and thinking about the purposes of Brock and hearing about how the pressures, the, 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 the boundaries between one tribe and another can cause uh, friction or if it is in the culture to raise another tribe, another community to get what you don't have to improve your community the Brock makes complete sense to me now. This is the theory that I'm sticking to. The Brock was a... Uh, they're a kind of nuclear option because they're unassailable and because you can get, you know, you can... Anything inside the Brock can't be got at. They're a kind of nuclear option between tribes because there's a, there's a you know, mutually assured destruction uh, in, in <laughs> yeah, okay. terms of nuclear arms, I think we've got a mutually assured disappointment. That's an interesting concept, actually. I can see where you're coming from. Yeah. There is absolutely no point in raiding because the thing you want can be squirreled away inside the brock. Yeah. And if the next tribe along, the next community along, the next community along, they've all got the brock, yeah. what's, it kills raiding in its tracks. Yeah, that is interesting, because there are a lot of them. That was my thought. That was that was my thinking that uh, that came out of all this. Strangely enough, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if there's anything in that well, fits for maybe. me though. Yeah, yeah. And with that profundity, with that profundity, yeah, I think it's time to move on. <laughs> Too much blood and gore. <laughs> Well, do you know what? I can't believe we've got here so quickly. But that brings us once again to question time. <laughs> has, there, has anyone asked anything this month, Rupert? Well, yes. Uh, this is a question from Roger Clear. Roger doesn't say where he's from, actually. Um, okay. Uh, but uh, this is on the back of a map. I posted in the not literally last on month. the back of a map. Not no 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 no. This is a comment that has arisen on the back of yes a, <laughs> a map I posted in the community last month. Yes, showing how the northern European landmass has changed over the last sixteen thousand years, going back to when Britain was still joined to Europe and Doggerland was an enormous mass of land extending across the North Sea. That got interesting, didn't it? It did get interesting. Yeah. Anyway, well, yeah. Roger asked, if there was that much land above sea level, 
does that mean that there are stone circles all over the place beneath the sea? Well, it's a nice question. <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> Shall we move it on? It is a nice question, though, isn't it? <laughs> yes. No. Well, go on. You said no first, so I'll let you explain. <laughs> well, well, very simply put, it, the land we see today is pretty much how it was when megalithic culture and the practice of building stone circles began. So, no, there won't be loads of circles under the oceans. There will, however, be circles a short way out to sea in a few places where the sea levels have changed in more recent history. I think, in fact, one was found off the coast of Orkney a year or so ago. Mm, yeah, and there's true. that one that um, sort of, yeah, depends what time, where it is with the tide. It, uh, it's just on a level with the water and it disappears partly with the tide in the um, Morbihan um, in Brittany. Yes, in the that's bay, true. In the bay there, yeah. 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 I think it's worth pointing out, though, that although there won't be anything megalithic, mm. there will be a wealth of artefacts and traces from our hunter-gatherer ancestors who would have lived throughout that sunken world. Isn't that the fascinating thing, though, that there is mm. so much? Who would have thought, mm. you know, just by dredging the bottom of the, the, the North Sea over, over Dogland that so much... Uh, uh, could, could come up. We were only talking last month about uh, the Dogland with those discoveries off the Norfolk coast. Still so much to discover. Yes, I hope we haven't sort of dealt with that question too with too much uh, brevity. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, all these things really help bring these transitional periods into focus. And, you know, the things that I didn't appreciate before we started investigating, the, the, you know, that there were these transitional stages back in the day, back, you know, we tended to lump, um, you know, Neolithic and Bronze Age and Mesolithic and stuff together without really seeing uh, the huge transitions that were going uh, underway. And that, mm. relatively speaking, um, megalithic uh, building, megalithic culture was a relatively recent thing. And a narrow band. And a narrow band, indeed, yeah. Mm. Although it's prominent there in the landscape in terms of time scales it's not that prominent it's a, quite a blip really yeah. yeah very interesting anyway just that helps that perspective you know puts another yeah. little bit of uh, detail on things for everybody yay yeah. so, so with, thanks Roger thanks yeah, for the question thank you very much indeed so what are we going to do now To do well, now, Rupert. And, uh, do you know what? I, I think it's um, it's time for um, you know what? It's time for Stonehead of, of the Month. month. <laughs> it is. Well, you've go been, on. You've been waiting for this, haven't you, <laughs> uh, <laughs> listeners? <laughs> if, only, if, if it's only have. to hear us put a silly voice mm. on. Ah, uh, dear. Yes, yes. This it's month that keeps on giving. This month, the laurels go to. Andy Waring. Now, I should say, actually, Andy is a friend of mine. But he really does deserve the accolade on, for then. a couple of reasons. Make this really. good. Yeah. A, Andy is a complete nerd when it comes to megalithic stuff, when it comes to historical stuff, anything you can dig out of the ground. 
And indeed it was Andy, Andy Wang, that got me onto the uh, dig on the Sisters Long Barrow, uh, which I was on a couple of uh, weeks ago. Andy is a member of the uh, Standing with Stones community and he follows us closely. But there's a, a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff that he does, you know, oiling the wheels and, and making sure, like I got on that uh, dig and stuff like that, that, uh, that he deserves uh, a lot of thanks for. Um, a, a thoroughly good egg and absolutely keen amateur archaeologist that's the thing, with a special right. interest in the Neolithic that had him turn up every day for the two weeks of the sister's long barrow dig. Oh, God, did he? Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, with his trowel. Yeah, his enthusiasm and drive and his knowledge uh, were just an inspiration. So thank you, Andy. Thanks for all you do. Super. Well done, that man. So we're hurtling, as we do, um, towards <laughs> the end of podcast number 18. Yes. So uh, do we have anything whimsical this month or, uh, or a setting the record straight piece, perhaps, something <laughs> like that? Is it the grouchy hat? Is it... Uh, uh, well, well, you know, this is very short and very sweet and utterly... Appalling journalism. <laughs> Go on, do tell. <laughs> well, hold your horses. This is from the Daily Mail. Hang about. What? The Daily Mail said something about archaeology? Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> debatable. <laughs> but the headline reads... OK. Yeah. Incredible reconstruction reveals the face of Iron Age elder Hilda the Druid, wait for it, who died in Neolithic Scotland 1,500 years ago. (laughs) 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 You'd think the editor would have picked up on it, wouldn't you? Oh, you'd have thought, wouldn't you? It's awful, isn't it? Here we are chuckling away because we know... How wrong that is, but you know, on the face of it, who would who would know unless you'd uh, just understood a little bit about the chronology of uh, you know ancient stuff? But if they're just going to make up words, you know, you'd think that they'd check things, wouldn't you? You, you yeah, yeah, you would. Neolithic Scotland, <laughs> one thousand five hundred years ago. <laughs> oh, that is so wrong, isn't it? But they've called her Iron Age Hilda the Druid, yeah, who so- died in Neolithic Scotland. <laughs> yeah, that was a neat trick. Oh, dear. Anyway, yes. See, this is what I was talking about. Things getting compressed yes. in time, yes. in our heads. Yeah. So forgive us. Forgive the laughter and the chuckles. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Oh, if you're going to write about the stuff, please get it right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, look, sounds like me getting my grouchy hat on. I tell well, you there's what, a place, there's a place for it. Well, there is a place for it. I tell you what, there's a, there's a. I have a, I have a bit of extra grouchiness to go in this whimsy section. You know. Uh oh. Yeah, yeah. It, it, well, it's not such a, a grouchy hat, but a, an interesting observation that came out. Did you notice that on? Um, our community, and on several other groups. I don't know why all ha- these things always happen at the same time. You know, it's like mm. the old 
number 88 bustle coming along, but several people independently put photographs on Facebook, wherever, of benchmarks, (laughs) of Ordnance Survey benchmarks that were on stones in churches or near other sites, you know, of of older buildings. And uh, straight off the bat... These uh, benchmarks were being interpreted as runes, yes. you know, or people inquiring about what the what the special meaning could be of this mark upon this church, upon this sacred place. <laughs> and I don't know yeah. what it speaks. And it obviously speaks to uh, our age, certainly. But we were taught this stuff in school. Mm-hmm. A benchmark is a very practical thing that you put on a permanent in a permanent place, so somebody else coming along after can put his surveying equipment in exactly the same place mm. and note any changes that have happened you know for the purposes of map making mm. of the ordnance so they're really practical things uh, they're that shape for a purpose. They look like a a tripod with a sort of a bar across the top. Mm. And that's specifically for locating instruments in the right place. And if it's on the floor, if it's horizontal, then you sometimes get a dot in that place so somebody can stand their surveying rod. Mm. Um, Obviously, there were people coming along and saying, it's a benchmark. Just saying the word benchmark without any explanation. No, I was just going to say, it it says so much about... Humanity, doesn't it? That we'll see something we don't understand and immediately label it as mystical. Yeah, we 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 want to create a, some sort of story about it, and yeah. what we tend to do is not go down the practical route, but go a bit on the mystical side. Yes, you know, like we are some... creatures of woo woo. But but look, this is the thing that's happened within the space of decades, just decades. It's true. And what hope do we have when we're looking back millennia in that case? Well, that's why everybody needs grouches like us who don't, who don't, who don't do the woo-woo. <laughs> Ain't that the fact. As I said earlier, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. Yeah. And we are the guys, apparently. Apparently we are. Oh, yeah. Thereby hangs a tale for later on in the year. But Yes. I tell you and what, on that jolly note, then. On that jolly note, it is time to say goodbye. I've already thanked our Patreon supporters and everybody. Everybody knows where to go if they um, uh, would like to uh, support um, our darings do um, further. But uh, in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed the podcast and we look forward to seeing you, hearing you, or you hearing us, oh, for crying out loud, next time. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Take good care, folks. See you soon. Bye-bye.